Hello and welcome to History Respond, the podcast. I'm your host, John Harney, and I'm joined by Bob. Hey, Bob. Hey, John. How are you? I am good, thanks. You know, Bob, it was my idea to call the podcast, and um, I just thought we should sit down and kind of, you know, uh, rap a little, as the kids said, I think in the 1970s. I'm not sure. I'm now making airplane movie references without meaning to. Um, uh, just to talk about like kind of what's happening in games, and maybe we'll start kind of chatting a bit more often putting it out there um so a little bit of history content later because we can't help ourselves but we're gonna i don't know bob are you okay with with getting all current sure let's do it just like the kids yeah just like the kids <laughs> so i don't have a newswire reel but we thought we'd talk a little bit how things are going um i guess the big story this week and get ready to have your minds blown but as bob and i give you our full financial analysis is whatever the heck is going on with the GameStop shorting redditors robin hood app kind of scenario um and if you're not fully up to speed on what's going on the, the short version is that for quite a while now um our group of redditors on the site reddit um called uh, the, the wall street bets reddit they they've been doing things like this for a long time and at some point uh, people noticed that gamestop was probably going to have long-term problems that it was selling less games than it had yes the pandemic hasn't helped but also you know the fact that you can buy a playstation 5 with no disc drive in it does not really bode well for their gate for their business model which relied pretty heavily on used games and all the rest of it and so people would would do this thing called shorting which effectively is um that you are borrowing the shares from someone who has shares in in this case in gamestop you are um and you are effectively, uh, sorry, you are selling the shares then for, let's say, $5 a share, whatever it was. And as GameStop goes further into its death cycle, uh, you'll, you, you know, you've pocketed the five bucks and you'll pay the $2 to buy back the requisite number of shares to give it back to the person from whom you borrowed it. Bob, did that sound even remotely? <laughs> that sounds relatively intelligible. <laughs> There's plenty of articles explaining this online. That's a great point. But the this ringer, is a, you know, yeah, but, this is a really interesting story, I think, for both of us because yeah, Game uh, Stop is based in Grapevine, Texas, which is a place mm-hmm. where both of us have lived at different times in our lives. That's right. And so it's something that's close to home, and it's really interesting to see this company at the center of this kind of attack on hedge funds, on uh, kind of Wall Street establishment perpetrated by a group of, you know, they call them Redditors, but they're just investors, um, you know, just right. like anybody else, just normal people. Well, maybe not normal people because they're on Reddit. <laughs> but yeah, and so it's really interesting, I think, for me, I'm sure it is for you, to think about uh, GameStop being in this kind of position because it is one of those places where, you know, they had a great deal of power in uh, a couple of generations, console generations ago with the 360 PS3. It was kind of mm-hmm. their heyday. Uh, but now as things have gone digital, it, it does seem like one of those weary titans that is going to eventually collapse like a lot of other brick and right. mortar stores. And I think that that's what those uh, who are shorting the stock were assuming was going to happen or probably right. hoping would happen. And I think it's <laughs> it's curious to me that this kind of issue between the hedge fund and the small investors is sprouted up over GameStop, but I think that you know, the people investing from that Reddit group were really encouraged by what they saw with you know, the most recent um, quarterly reports coming out of GameStop, where it seems like they're doing better than was expected. Um, right. But of course, a lot of that, you know, I think what gets lost in this is that 
GameStop is closing a lot of stores. They're getting rid of a lot of employees. So it's not like this uh, plucky, um, you know, uh, company that is beating the odds, you know, uh, fighting back against this shortening thing. It is a company that is really doing a lot of things that nasty capitalist country or companies do when times get tough is they tighten their belts and they get rid of employees. So, right. Um, it's kind of a weird, weird thing. I don't know. It's strange to see this kind of story in not just the game press, but then like it's front page news and the New York times and wall street journal. It's, um, it's, but I yeah. wish that there was kind of a little bit more nuance with the way that the story is being told. Yeah, it's a weird, there's a lot of weird wrinkles to it. I mean, so for example, I think a lot of us have considered GameStop to be kind of a dead man walking for a while, but I've been reading some interesting analyses pointing out, well, they kind of had a lot of cash on hand last year. And so they were actually in a lot better health than you probably think they Mm -hmm. were. Um, One of the reasons the shorting issue has caused the price to go flying quite so high is that some of these hedge funds in particular, they were effectively like they were shorting more stock that actually existed, mm-hmm. which is a bet that will pay off if the company goes bankrupt. And so now there's all this kind of weird panic. And then, you know, we see it in U.S. Congress, people like, Alex, you know, um, uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez on one side and, you know, people who are usually very much ideologically opposed to her in, in terms of things like financial matters and stuff, effectively agreeing um, that it's not right that Robin Hood, which is this very popular app uh, that, that, anybody listening can use to buy and sell stock, made it possible to sell GameStop stock, but stopped you from buying anymore um, yesterday. And this felt kind of like an artificial bending of the market that upset a lot of people. Um, But as you say, Bob, it's intriguing because, you know, Casa Cortez, you know, she had this stream of Among Us that got like, I think, 300,000 viewers or something um, only a couple months ago. So there's this kind of I think that outside the quote unquote gaming world, there are these mutual assumptions, which is, oh, these weirdos are messing with the system <laughs> in this kind of assumption that you're into video games, you're some weird you know, person. Um, or perhaps if you follow Ocasio-Cortez, but don't play games, oh, the gamers are doing something cool. And neither of those is really the case, right? These are just mm. people. In fact, we don't actually know who they are. I mean, and the joke going on Twitter the other day was, you know, a GameStop, GameStop stock is now trading at $385, which means you can get it for, if you sell it, you get $14.50, I think was the joke that I saw. This is, so <laughs> (laughs) there's this like level of bitterness then of people who remember or who feel like they were stiffed by GameStop yeah during the 360 PS3 era for example Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so no so it's fascinating so I I don't know I mean it's funny Bob because I joke about not knowing much about the financial side but I end up thinking more about it's just yet another example of um, games feel mainstream but then these kind of cliches about quote-unquote gamers just they don't seem to go anywhere Mm-hmm. They hang around, mm-hmm. or, or maybe that just tells us the uh, the median age in the American Congress is slightly higher than the rest of the country. Maybe that's it could be it, or I think it's just when we get these cliches, they're very difficult to overcome. It's very difficult to overcome yeah. a stereotype once it's set in. And you know, I think most people, you know, if you read the uh, ESA uh, and their reports, yearly reports about the type of people who play games, you know, everybody all types of people play games. Um, But there is this kind of old cliche of, you know, the angry white dude living in his mom's basement playing Fortnite or what have you or Call of Duty more likely. (laughs) And I think that that kind of 
crutch for telling a story about games is one that's going to be with us for a while, even though it doesn't, I mean, it still exists for sure. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, just go play Call of Duty online, but <laughs> it's one that I think will gradually change over time, but it takes, it takes a long time to get over that. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, I, I've got gotten really involved with the uh, esports here at center college where I work and, um, there are people who want to help the sports program who kind of see it as a way to ameliorate um, these supposed social problems that are just inherent in video game play. Um, but then when you get a team together, you find out, okay, this is a person who they speak the language of competitive video games, which is to say that they're just awful to be around when they're playing video games. <laughs> and so it's really fascinating how you do have that kind of persistent kind of I don't know, toxicity or vibe or mm -hmm. whatever. But the other side of it then, I remember somebody said to me, would you consider getting the players to do laps and do physical training, conditioning training as part of being part of the esports program? And I was kind of thought to myself, well, I thought to myself, would I want to do laps? And I thought, no. So I didn't want to do it. <laughs> and then a couple of the players themselves suggested to me, what if we did that? And so even, in, uh, you know, I just feel like, and even in the work that we do with History Respond, none of these, um, what's the word, um, none of the cliches hold up for very long. I think in part because the audience has widened so much. Mm -hmm. So, so I wonder, I wonder if GameStop is the first of like a series of these weird things. I don't know which company would be next. Xfinity, maybe, I don't know. Um, Xfinity is doing pretty well, but that's uh, true. Yeah. I just read now I was on the Washington Post website and they said that, uh, AMC theaters, a very big uh, theater chain right. in the United States is now out of, uh, Six hundred million dollars in debt because of this campaign by redditors to buy up their stock. So it's it's fascinating. I think uh, this yeah. whole story, and uh, it's interesting to have uh, games play a central role in this story regarding finance and economics. But this is the world we live in. I think that mm -hmm. for most people, it does come as a bit of surprise that games have moved into this central role in. American culture and American business, right? This is an right. industry that's bigger than film. Uh, it's right. bigger than television. So it's not, I mean, it should, it shouldn't come as a big stock, but I think it is coming as a big shock. Yeah. The economist uh, had an article of the day covering cyberpunk 2077. I read the economist a lot and the economist rarely discusses video games. And it was a really interesting, it was a really good article and it was a really interesting article. And it had a little bit, it had some throwaway comments about the violence in the game, which in fairness, the game is actually quite violent. Um, but it really kind of covered it as an example, you know, CD Projekt Red is a, is a Polish company, a European company, and the extent to which European video games as an industry, from their perspective, you know, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an economics kind of analysis outlet, um, is exhibiting all the problems of kind of Europe as a continent, which is European political leaders are just completely focused on coal and cars and, you know, the real backbone of like a 1970s economy. And they have a company like CD Projekt Red and nobody knows what to do with them. Um, so yes, yeah, Cyberpunk had all these problems, but it also sold like bucket loads of uh, bucket loads of copies. And as The Economist said, um, you know, if, uh, you know, I forget which example, but if Universal, if Disney released a movie that made $600 billion or something, um, they wouldn't lose too much sleep that it was bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that like the critics thought it was terrible. Mm -hmm. And so video games gets into this really interesting space, mm -hmm. you know? Well, that actually has to be gotten to the, the next news item and two of two, uh, which uh, Jason Schreier, who now works for Bloomberg, and uh, listeners uh, probably remember Schreier. We've mentioned it before. He wrote a great book called Blood, Sweat, and Pixels. He was a Kotaku for a long time, and now he's a reporter of Bloomberg, um, writing 
fantastic stuff. He had an excellent piece on Cyberpunk on, only the other week discussing a lot of the internal problems uh, in the production of that game. And he's an article out this morning talking about Amazon games, which is really useful. Um, now, Bob, did you get a chance to read this? I did not. Yeah. I love Schreier's work, but I haven't got a chance to yeah. read this. So, so I, I'll do a quick, a quick kind of summary then. Um, so effectively, uh, Schreier is, is talking about, you know, Amazon at, at one point, so Amazon owns Twitch, they bought Twitch. And they sell video games, of course, through the Amazon service, the same way they sell books and all these other things and PC components and everything else. But the article is uh, specifically about Amazon games, the, the division of the company that is going to make and publish video games, their own video games. And what they uh, and and so the article is examining some of the issues they've had. At one point, they had four games uh, publicly announced, all of which were supposed to kind of you know upend and change. Um, uh, change the video game kind of uh, market effectively. Um, and they released the game Crucible a few months ago, which was effectively kind of a, a kind of a destiny kind of group shooter, looter kind of idea. And Crucible, they actually pulled it back off the virtual shelves. It was such a disaster. And I played Crucible one evening and I'm so, I'm sorry to say they made very much the correct decision to take. It was it was it was awful. It was just awful. Um, and they have another. They have New World, which is this kind of MMO. Supposedly, it's an MMO where you colonize a foreign land inhabited by local indigenous people who sure look a lot like Native Americans. Um, and when this was put to Amazon, they're like, oh, no, there's there's no way. And the article points out they then hired a consultant who came in and said, you can't publish this game, right? <laughs> like this, <laughs> You can't do this. This is offensive. So they have all these kind of issues. I also read a little bit of New World and similar to Crucible, you know, and in fairness, New World was still in beta, very kind of undercooked, you know. And, and on what Schreier's article, the thrust of the article is this, is that they took a guy, the thrust of the article, the thesis of the article, is that Amazon is determined to make its game division work the quote-unquote Amazon way, which is Amazon has a whole series of um, corporate kind of ideas, motifs, practices, ethoses really, um, that have been very, very effective for them. They kind of began in the book selling world online, but they have since used to sell all kinds of goods. Um, and, you know, in, in the Amazon Prime uh, ecosystem, Amazon Video, all these things, they've successfully maintained a corporate culture across all these regions. But in the game space, it's failing really quite miserably, in fact, spectacularly. Um, and Schreyer's argument is that, in effect, Amazon are missing out on the fact that there's a pretty big difference between the way a video game company works, especially if you're talking like AAA titles and the way that, you know, the rest of Amazon works. So um, he puts a lot of blame at the guy running, heading Amazon games, this uh, gentleman named Mr. Frazzini, who has a successful track record at Amazon. He's the guy who successfully negotiated the purchase of Twitch for, I think it was 800 billion or something like that, which turned out to actually be a very good deal for Amazon. Um, and, or sorry, no, I, I've got the number completely wrong. But anyway, he, he put Amazon uh, and he kind of rose up through the ranks. He's kind of an Amazon guy and he's made a lot of interesting decisions. He's hired a lot of very prominent people like uh, Clint Hawking, for example, of Far Cry 2 fame, uh, many of whom have since left the company. And then he made some interesting decisions. So he decided he didn't want to use Unreal Engine or Unity, that Am Amazon would build their own tool set, which is called Tool Game Engine, which is called Lumberyard which has proven an absolute, the people working in Amazon, at least those who talk to Schreyer, hate it. 
um, and, and argue that it just is completely ineffective and isn't really working. And Amazon Games has a budget of $500 million a year. And that's separate from Twitch. It's separate, that's just to produce and then subsequently release video games. And, you know, Frazzini and, and, and Frazzini reports to the guy who runs Amazon Web Services and Jeff Bezos, by all accounts, is, is, is involved in this too. There's kind of a big picture idea that they will be able to both use their games to draw gamers into Amazon Web Services and also simultaneously leverage Amazon Web Services to empower the games in some way and bring in features. And, you know, a lot of this is pie in the sky stuff, but if you think of what Google Stadia's supposed selling point was, that you'll be streaming a game and suddenly you're playing the game and all that kind of stuff, Amazon has similar kind of dreams. And what we have so far are multiple games cancelled and one game that looks very badly undercooked. Um, so it's really fascinating. I really encourage people to go to, to Bloomberg and check it out. Bloom, Bloomberg has a paywall, but it will let you read articles up to a certain point. Um, and if you look for Schreier, um, Amazon games, you'll find it. Um, so it's fascinating. And so his mm -hmm. central thesis, as I said, is that effectively Amazon are trying to push a kind of a corporate culture that has been very successful onto a style of, on, onto, onto game production, which just isn't responding. He argues because you have this mixture of art, entertainment awareness, in addition to the technical that you just don't have in, you know, on the other, in the other aspects of Amazon's business. Mm -hmm. So Amazon bought Twitch several years ago for $970 million. Million, my apologies. I, I said no. billion, I was like, that can't be. That's it's okay. That's a COVID stimulus bill price. That's not. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, so which, that's yeah. that's very good business, I think. Yes. You know, and yes. I feel like we're turning into a Bloomberg podcast right now. But <laughs> it it is interesting to me. I think that you would just assume, like I would just assume prior to the creation of uh, Amazon's game division, that they would just succeed at this by dint of having a lot of money, but mm -hmm. that's yep. not the case. And I think you could easily say the same thing right now for uh, Stadium. It's you know mm -hmm. it, Google has all the money in the world and are not making a success of this. And I think you could also look at what Apple is starting to do. There's news this past week about them getting into virtual reality. They've tried to build up their selling of games at the very least. Uh, mm -hmm. But I'd say that has not been a big success so far. So it's interesting. I think there was definitely a sense maybe five years ago when all of this started that you looked at the landscape and you saw Steam, you saw the major console creators and then the major development companies. And you looked and said, well, I mean, Amazon, Apple, Google, they could just jump right into this and dominate the whole thing. And that's just... Mm -hmm. That hasn't that been the case, happened. and that that's surprising to me. I mean, maybe that speaks more to my own ignorance about how all this stuff works. But you know, I feel like I'm we're we're both pretty well versed in the business of games, at mm -hmm. least in the past decade. And I think I'm still surprised, you know, from five years on that that kind of progress hasn't been made. Yeah, Schreier's you know Schreier's a great journalist, and um, his article has lots of fantastic little details. And I think there's there's really interesting contrast. So he talks about frustration among some who've now left Amazon at like having to produce a six page document to make an argument for like a major process. I'm like, well, you know, guys, that's kind of, that's a 
pretty normal thing, you know, like in, in these corporate environments. It's really not the end of the world. You'd be asked to kind of make pitches and so on. Um, but at the same time, uh, like you say, like the blunderbuss of money just isn't working. And then, you know, you can see these examples of, uh, you know, Frizzini coming in after a meeting with his bosses saying, right, Amazon is going to sell games through a Twitch, uh, through Twitch or through another app. Uh, we're going to we're going to supplant Steam. And his, the people he's hired who know the games industry saying to him, you can't really do that. You know, it, it, what effect you're arguing is you're going to take our game out of Steam, which is, which is a problem. And what games are you going to sell on this new Amazon Steam? And there'd be lots of things like that. And then simultaneously, you know, this Lumberyard uh, uh, game engine I spoke of, you know, they'd be setting things to render that in, that in Unreal Engine maybe take, takes a few minutes. Um, and they would just go and play Halo or go for lunch because they knew the rendering would take so long, all these kind of little things. And then finally, the real kind of bummer <laughs> is that um, there are people in the story telling Schreyer that, you know, some of the issues around, if not sexual harassment, and certainly the problems of a kind of a male-dominated bro-y kind of culture have come into Amazon or decent Amazon games out of these kind of games environments. So they're kind of, if the article's accurate, and I have no reason to think it's not, Amazon has sadly for them they've they have the worst of everything yeah and they're not getting any of the benefits they supposedly should be getting from bringing money into it who could have imagined the emergence of a broy culture with a development <laughs> tool called lumberyard I <laughs> I don't know I mean it's just a shock I'm just thinking Monty Python now <laughs> <laughs> you know I, I tried Amazon Luna and it was interesting because um it works. I thought it was pretty decent. Um, I, I, I felt it'd be better if I got the controller, but I've heard the controller isn't good. But in the end, I was like, okay, that was okay, but I don't actually need it. Um, I still find myself playing Steam. I think the people, funnily enough, of all the massive corporations who look um, the most likely to actually capitalize the next five to 10 years in games, Microsoft is the obvious winner. And they're the ones who, you know, they bet big way, you know, in the early 2000s. Yeah. The first and, Xbox was a weird, that was a weird machine. Yeah, but now they've got 20 some odd years of experience with right. this business and it shows, right? They know mm -hmm. where to make their big bets. And even though they haven't produced very good first party games in a long time now, probably seven years, right? it's still, they know where the good games are and they know which studios to buy. And so... That's uh, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think it shows that uh, even if they don't have the same amount of money and cachet as Amazon and Google and Apple in terms of wider finance, they can still make smart bets, right? Uh, because they've got experience. I, I will say, like, I have sympathy with you know Amazon and others who aren't like in the gaming space because. So Amazon Luna, for example, those who don't know, so this is Amazon's Stadia, effectively. Um, and what you can do, what's interesting about that is you don't have to, I don't think you have to have base Luna to have the Ubisoft channel. And effectively, if you want to have Ubisoft cloud gaming, you, they basically just do it through Amazon. They more or less subcontracted it through that, as it were. Um, but uh, if you got Amazon Video, you can buy HBO, right, as a bolt-on, the same way you do for cable. And some people do that. And I don't know how many video game players are going to do that. Uh, who are going to pay for an Ubisoft channel and then a Rockstar channel and then another channel. And the funny thing is, if you're an Amazon guy who doesn't know much about games, you, you know, you can, you're getting all this information on your computer about, you know, video game players as people listening, as we all know, our guilt ridden hearts. We spend a lot of money on games. Don't, don't stop and tot up the price of the last five games you bought. Trust me. It's not a good, it's not good for your mental health. 
but despite that, so so these people have all this information. Oh, you know, John Harney, for example, this 39-year-old man spends a lot of money on games. On, so he'll buy the Ubisoft channel, but I'm not going to. And, and I don't know that I can, I feel like people who play a lot of video games and purchase them kind of instantly kind of see why they don't want to do that. Um, but I, I have sympathy for the business types who are just like, we're just trying to exploit you, you know, in the capitalist sense. Mm-hmm. Why don't you let us do that? <laughs> you let Steam do it. Steam walks all over you. <laughs> oh gosh, they really do. They really, really, really do. do. They really do. So, so, so it's a really, it's a really fascinating thing. And I think I wouldn't go all the way with Schreier. I, I, I would worry a little bit about um, kind of giving almost magical qualities to the like the video game creative space. But then again, I think it's it is an interesting environment with its own background. Like if people haven't read Masters of Doom which is a fantastic paperback book about the first Doom game, the creation of it. Those That aid software era is absolutely fascinating. Like John Romero was kind of a weird dude. I mean, he was he was a young man, you know, who was, who was about to become a superstar and he kind of knew it. And it's just the John Carmack, John Romero kind of synthesis of weird tech guy and weird guy who invented the concept of deathmatch and they created a game about going into hell to fight demons. There's something... There's something about that synthesis between the creative and the technical that is definitely still there, I think, at the successful studios. And it does seem that poor Amazon right now have just completely failed to recreate it or mm-hmm. capture it. And, and hiring people isn't enough. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so fascinating. Go check it out. So, speaking of massive corporations and Sony, I just, the real reason I wanted to podcast today, Bob. Is I want to hear about this uh, the PlayStation Five. You are <laughs> I. I want to congratulate you, <laughs> the proud owner of a PlayStation Five. Biden's I, uh, America, PlayStation I Five know. on every shelf. I know, <laughs> it's amazing. When Trump was still in office, couldn't get one. Now, first week of Biden, I was able to snag one. So, <laughs> I was able to after several months of trying get my hands on a PlayStation Five. I got it from my local Best Buy. Went and picked it up. I got it all set up couple nights ago and I've been playing it for the past couple of days and I'd say early reviews are really great. Um, it is a very nice user experience as they say, uh, really great menus, really snappiness to the presentation of the menus and speed of the entire machine and loading and downloading too is really fast. And I think all of that is amazing. Now, one of the things that's a little bit disappointing is that you know, John asked me before the show started, you know, does it have that kind of new console feel? Like, you know, you're really excited. You wake up every day and just like, I've got a PlayStation 5. <laughs> and I, I do feel that a little bit, but it's kind of dented a bit because it also plays all of my PS4 games, which, you know, on the one hand, you might say, oh, that's fantastic. You know, like you don't have to get a whole new library of games. They're just all right there. And it's like, yeah, that's true. But that also kind of points to the idea that there's not that much to play mm, on the PlayStation yeah. 5 right now. But I would say that playing this console, playing the games that are available, has made me really hopeful so far about the future of games. I think last year, John and I, you know, we'd had several discussions on air and off air about how, you know, in certain respects, some of what's happening with game development and game publishing is a bit boring. It keeps going over the same grounds. It keeps promising innovation when none really happens. But I got the PlayStation 5 
And I feel like a lot of that skepticism has gone away now because I look at this machine and I see a lot of opportunities, not only with the power of the machine and the user experience, but then also with things that I didn't expect, like the controller, uh, which mm-hmm. this controller, uh, the I think it's called the Sense uh, Sense controller. It is incredible. I think it's easily the best controller I've ever owned. Uh, it feels amazing. Uh, it's got a nice weight to it. And then also the best part of it is they really went in hard with haptic feedback, which has been a part of cell phones for quite a while. You know, particularly if you own an iPhone, they're very into haptics. But I would say that the best implementation of it I've seen so far is through this PlayStation 5 controller, which really makes you feel in touch with the game in a very visceral way. Like they really give you, it's kind of like having pinpoint rumble to your control controller. So it's, it's right. not like, you know, just kind of a general rumble, but instead it's, it's kind of a, a sense that you are, you were feeling the game, you're touching the action uh, in a way that I, it's hard to describe. You just have to, you have to try right. it out. And then similarly, there are various points in the games that I played. I, I've been playing uh, Miles Morales and Astro's Playroom and then Bug Snacks. And in each one of those games, there are moments where sound comes from your controller. So it gives you a sense of almost surround sound, but then it also kind of a closer sense of contact with the game. And it's almost like somebody's whispering something to you as you're playing, like (laughs) off in the background, even though it's just something in your hands. It's really an amazing feeling. And it's something that I'm a little bit disappointed so far by the games on offer, but the technology I've seen so far makes me really excited about the games that will be coming in the next couple of years. That's awesome. I, you know, I will say, and it might just be anticipation of getting one myself at some point, um, you know, six months ago, I was writing off the PlayStation 5 and the Xbox Series X. It's like, ah, eh, if you have a decent PC, do you really need it? And I think that might still be true of the Series X, so it's tough to tell. But for example, something like ray tracing, which is the new hotness now. And like six months ago, I didn't really care. And now all I want to do is play Minecraft with ray tracing. Um, <laughs> but I don't want to spend hundreds of dollars on a graphics card to do that, basically for the price of a PS5. And now we could kind of now we could kind of match it. So I think there's I think I underestimated the impact that it could have, maybe the kind of the slow burn impact. I can't wait to get my hand on that controller. That sounds it's incredible. Awesome. I mean, awesome. And I've been playing games, you know, for many decades now, since 1985, 1986, something like that. And I think the easily best controller wow. experience that I've had in those years. And it really, I mean, I just can't wait to see what developers do with it. And I should say that um, the pack-in game for the PlayStation Five, which is uh, called Astro's Playroom. Mm-hmm. it's a really good it, it it's completely done it's a it's designed to train you to use the controller and mm-hmm. but it's also a showpiece for developers to show them what can be done with this new controller and how it can be used and it's a really great uh platforming game uh, 3d platformer uh, it's a bit like um it's a, kind of sony's version of uh, super mario world uh, or you know, uh, 3D World or whatever you want to call it, Super Mario Odyssey, that type of thing. Um, but it is a, it's a tech demo, but it's also a love letter to the history of the PlayStation. So if you're curious about, you know, what this console, how it adapts, maybe the kind of longer history of the PlayStation, there's a very real sense in Astro's Playroom that 
they developed this game, but then also the console itself to pay homage to the longer history of PlayStations one through four. And it's a really magical experience. I don't want to spoil it because there is actually, it's weird to think of spoilers for a pack-in game, but there <laughs> are kind of these wonderful little uh, things that you can discover that if you have been playing games for as long as I have, they're really a nice touch of nostalgia. And it really, I think, does a really good job of endearing you, the player, to the new console, right? That's kind awesome. of seeing it as part of this, this longer history of, of the PlayStation. So it's just, it's great. I love it. I, I want to get back to games actually in a second, but a quick question. What is the physical object of the PlayStation like? Because I've only seen it on screens. It just looks <laughs> like this enormous thing. It's huge. Um, it's huge. <laughs> it's so big. Like, how does it feel? Like, does it, I know it's huge, but like, does it look like this? It does it just look like this ridiculous thing in your living room, or you know, does it look like a console? What you know, like the the Wii was the classic, like uh, unobtrusive looking machine. This mm-hmm. is not that. No, at all. Yeah. no. This is something that's designed to stand out, and it it looks like a looks like a spaceship that might have been included in a, a 1980s B sci-fi movie. You know, it's kind of <laughs> looks like something that could have been in the original Battlestar Galactica or in the old Disney movie, Flight of the Navigator, that kind yeah. of look. And it's ginormous. Uh, <laughs> and I had a PlayStation 4 Pro in my TV console before this point. And so that is a honking huge piece of technology as well, but this PlayStation 5 easily dwarfs it. And the PS5 barely fit into the same space that I had reserved for the PS4 Pro. Right. So wow. I just switched them out and it barely fits in there. There's barely <laughs> enough clearance. And it when you open it, it's obviously really uh wide, but you don't realize how uh-huh. tall it is until you try to fit it into a small space. <laughs> and what's really outrageous about it. And I, I, I mean, I'm not really angry about it. I think I love this about it, but PlayStation 5, it has this wavy design. And so it can't uh, sit level horizontally on its own. You need to use a stand for it. <laughs> and so they provide you with what could be the worst piece of plastic that I've ever encountered in my life. Now, this stand, it can be used to put the PlayStation vertical which I don't have space for in my living room. So I have doing it horizontal, but it also doubles as a horizontal stand. (laughs) Ridiculous to think about needing a horizontal stand (laughs) for a game console, but nevertheless, here we are. And this horizontal stand, it it just barely clips on the back end of the console. And if you were to like breathe on the PlayStation 5 the wrong way, (laughs) it comes sliding off, the whole console comes sliding off of this horizontal stand going forward right which is the worst possible outcome because there's a very good chance that you don't have something blocking the entrance for its spot in you know whatever right shell for console you have so you just come right out of there right and you just come <laughs> flying right out i mean it's just i can't believe they shipped this thing with this terrible stand i'm sure it works fine for vertical right, for right. horizontal again a horizontal stand i keep every day i'm just kind of walking around since i've gotten this PS5. I went on a walk this morning to drop some stuff of my daughter's school. And I was like, a horizontal stand. <laughs> Why on earth does that exist? Why would that need to exist? So, but 
at the same time, even though the stand is so awful, I love the way this machine looks. And I yeah. love that it's so weird. And I love <sighs> that it kind of stands out in the living room. And I, I think it's great that, you know, so that's my, it's my review <laughs> of the physical nature of this machine. Well, I'm glad I asked. That was awesome. I, I, I just keep thinking of like, like a super creative type person, like uh, it's Sony Europe or Sony Japan. Like I'm thinking Mugatu and Zoolander for some reason. And, you know, he designs this, they designed this machine and someone, someone said to them, well, what about for customers want to put it on its side? And they just stormed out. You know, <laughs> I won't be part of this. You know, you're on your own. And so they're like, crap, make make a stand. And we'll just, you know, it's too late uh, now. You know? I mean, it's just, it's so remarkable. I mean, it just it barely <laughs> clips on the back. And honestly, I've I've had to, at this point, you know, kind of jostle some things around behind the TV and to adjust the HDMI cord that goes into the PlayStation 5. And each time that's happened, the machine falls out of its stand and I have to put it back in there. And it's just like, oh gosh. And then, of course, I've got a two-year-old here. I was going to say, yeah. just wants to touch everything. <laughs> and so, you know, who knows? I'm going to come down one morning. It's going to be 5.30 in the morning. And there's just going to be a PS5 on the floor. So I know that day's coming, but but I, I can't complain too much. You know, it's really exciting to have a console so close to launch. And, you know, it's been many years since I've been able to afford having mm -hmm. a console right as it launches. And so it's a great feeling. It's really exciting. And Astro's Playroom is a really great pack-in game. Uh, cool. My daughter's really been enjoying Buck Snacks. Very, very strange game. Um, <laughs> and then uh, I've been playing Miles Morales, which is the follow-up to uh, the Spider-Man game, which came out on mm -hmm. PS4, I think, two or three years ago. Which is great. The original yeah, is great. And that game was great. And this one is good, too, although it's, it's kind of just more of that. It's kind of just more yeah. of that game. So if you're hoping for something a little bit different, I, I wouldn't say it's that different. I'm about three or four hours into it, so maybe it changes. But... You know, it's it's just kind of more of that game, but the visuals are just breathtaking, right? It's a it's a game that was built for this machine, and it it really shows, like awesome. zipping around in 4K with ray tracing, with uh, you know all this lighting. I mean, it's just it's it looks remarkable. So it's a real joy to play, if for no other reason than it's a a technical marvel. Yeah, I was going to ask you, so like, what's the game you're having the most fun with on your PS5? Is it Morales? I think Morales? it's it's Astro's Playroom. Uh, oh, cool. It is a really fun 3D platformer. And it is something that, I mean, I know it's supposed to be a tech demo, right? Really, it's mm -hmm. supposed to be something that celebrates the PlayStation legacy and then also attracts developers to think about this, uh, this um, pulse or sense, I should say, sense um, controller. But it's something that I look at, I'm just like, I just want a full game of this. Like, I want Astro's Playroom, <laughs> you know, at the same length as Super Mario Odyssey, you know, like a 10-hour game or something like that. So right. wow. that was the game that I came away with, just like, wow, this is really great. And it, it's because it, it makes use of the hardware, right? The controller, right. the audio coming out of the controller. Um, and I'm sure, you know, it could be adapted to use other peripherals, but I just think that that, that whole package together is, and the haptics of it are great. It's just, it's phenomenal. I just want more of that. That's what I want. That's awesome. That's awesome. 
Well, I was going to, you know, segue to what I've been playing, you know, back here with the peasants playing, you know, current generation stuff. <laughs> no, but actually, joking aside, um, I just started a game finally the last couple of nights, uh, Yakuza Like a Dragon, mm-hmm. which is the latest game in the Yakuza series, which is, for those who don't know, you play a Yakuza agent, but the Yakuza games are classic. You're walking around a pretty well-realized section of a modern Japanese city, uh, and it's a beat-em-up, basically. Um and Yakuza Like a Dragon is effectively the same kind of a game, except you're kind of doing JRPG style combat or kind of, it's kind of a, it's not, it, they don't, they don't pause for real time like the classic Final Fantasy games did, but you're more or less doing that. Um, and the reason actually it's kind of an interesting segue is that, first of all, the game is really interesting. It looks great. I mean, it's, so I, I'm playing it on the PC actually, it looks great. Um, but it's just funny because it's just such, it's so resolutely a creature not only this generation, but arguably the prior generation. And like all the Yakuza games are like this. And Metal Gear Solid 4 in particular was a lot like this, where it's like, why does this kind of feel like a super nice, super souped up version of a PS2 game in some ways? And I mean things like the dialogue, text for the dialogue windows and things like that. Like the fact that in Yakuza Like a Dragon, the characters all look great, but they haven't made that kind of leap that you see, for example, you know, in The Last of Us Part 2 or something like that. They're not doing it to complain about um, the game because I think it looks great and I'm really enjoying it. Um, just kind of fascinating because I'm pretty sure that the Yakuza games on the PlayStation 5 will also just look like this. You know, that they just kind of, I don't know, I, I guess at some point that becomes their thing, you know. Um, but that's been a lot of fun. And so far, I'd recommend it. Very kind of soap opera-y. Um, and then I've also, and segwaying to the final in a few minutes about what's coming up next on History Respond YouTube channel, I... Well, I haven't been playing Cyberpunk 2077 because I finally broke up with Cyberpunk 2077. Mm. It's a painful breakup. It took a long time. Um, I still have mostly fond fond feelings for that game. I'm tempted to go back, but um, but I can tell I can say why we broke up without spoiling too much. Uh, like a lot of games, it has a kind of a point of no return, which it tells you. So you're walking into this building, and it comes up going, "Hey." I think it literally calls it point of no return. Um, if you want to do other stuff, wink, wink, you should probably do that now. Um, once you do this, you're effectively rounding up the game. And there were a couple of side quests I really wanted to do, um, which were kind of filling out storylines of side characters. But Cyberpunk is really weird because like, sometimes it's doing a good job of that and sometimes it's not. So um, this particular mission for the side mission was one where... Um, you scope out a compound with the idea that you're going to sneak in, which is something the game wants you to do a lot. Now, the problem with that is the game is really garbage at stealth, um, and it's not a fun experience at all. So I said, I'm just going to run in and shoot people. And to cut a long story short, it took me 45 minutes of getting through this major action sequence, which was sometimes fun, but mostly not really. And then the game bugged out, and it popped me back to where I was at the start of that side mission. And that's when I realized that my relationship with Cyberpunk 2077 was over. And it was just so... And, and the weird thing about that game... I'm, I'm sorry, people are probably sick of hearing me talk with Cyberpunk 2077, but like, it's such an odd game because the technical problems are now famous, infamous. But also, like, why can't you save your game in the middle of a gunfight? Like, That's not a bug. That was a decision they made, which makes zero sense because some of these action sequences go on for, for a long time. Um you know why why are they taking one of the interesting one of the more interesting npcs her name is claire she's a bartender in one of these bars you go into early on and she's to learn more about her and interact with that character i need to play 
um, driving mini games in a game where the driving is just awful. As in, like turning a corner is it's just like it's not a fun thing to do. So really, really strange game. And so when I was Bob, when I was like 15, 20 hours into that game, and I would text you and stuff, and I'd say on this podcast, oh no, that game is good. I know people are frustrated with it, but it's definitely better than people think. Now I've gotten toward the reviewers all got. It's like, okay, now I see what they mean. And I'm sorry to say that that game just flat out, they didn't finish it. Mm. Like that, people are not exaggerating. The reviewers who've played the whole thing are not exaggerating. They didn't finish that game. And that is wild to me. Mm-hmm. You know, Keanu Reeves is on the, is on my TV at, in, in the middle of football games. Do you know what I mean? Like this mm-hmm. is, it blows my mind. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's great. Like this isn't like Anthem, you know, which had its problems. Like Anthem wasn't, they EA weren't pushing Anthem into the popular consciousness the way that Project Red, I think, successfully have done with Cyberpunk. Like people who people who know nothing about games have been asking about Cyberpunk, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just an unfinished video game. It's crazy. No, and as we learned from Jason Schreier in the past few weeks, so much time and effort was poured in during that development process into the E3 demo that debuted. Yeah, I think two or three years back. And that's what really escalated the amount of attention on this game. And yet, you know, that work on that demo took them away from producing a final product. And this is a story that happens all the time in game development. But it's one that I think, you know, now has affected something that's really, really huge, like a really big game that people were very excited about, that journalists were very excited about, were not ashamed of showing their enthusiasm for, and yet now here we are. Um, and yeah, it's yeah, it's unfortunate. And I keep coming back to, you know, what if I was a young kid, uh, maybe not too young, obviously the game is mature, but, you know, if I was a young kid who, uh, you know, asked for this game for Christmas, got it for the PlayStation four or the Xbox one and it's broken, right? That just would have been hugely disappointing and they don't have the same kind of financial uh, and otherwise they don't have that wherewithal to kind of fix the problems like we do, you know? Right. Um, So that's just that that's annoying. I think that's, that's such an important point now that the price point is going up a little bit for the next generation to $70 and, for for a pretty large subsection of video game fans, it's frustrating, but like it's doable. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a lot of money. Yeah, <laughs> seventy dollars for one game is a lot of money for something that you might play for, especially if you're young and can play whenever you want. You play for a week or two and you're done. Like mm-hmm. that's that's not you know how it works. I mean, I I'm fa- I mean I don't see. I mean, I personally think the game is at its best when it's effectively a fallout, like a Bethesda fallout type game. And I think if they had just made it kind of a first person light RPG, light shooter in this amazing setting, because the city is amazing. um, I think that would be a good game. I don't see them stripping out the weird GTA elements that they put in. I don't know why they did that, Um, but there's good stuff there. So, so the next history respawn video episode, or at least coming in early February, we're we're going to do cyberpunk, and I have actually invited a uh, a geographer to come and talk to me. Uh, he uh, his name is Professor Andre Sorensen, and he works at the University of Toronto, and he's an expert on urban spaces. Um, he also knows quite a bit about Japanese cities, which very clearly influenced Night City, and um, we're going to talk about Night City and kind of how CD how CD Project Red is kind of representing 
the future of a city and life within it. And um, I'm kind of looking forward to that. So, so he is, he kind of, he has some experience. He's not what you would call quote unquote, an historian, um, but he's someone who knows a lot, particularly about the post-war development of urban spaces in the Western world and in Asia. And um, I'm really looking forward to that because Night City, there is stuff going on there. I think in our video game world, like it's frustrating so many doors are locked and it's frustrating that a lot of the NPCs in the streets are kind of being, you know, are, 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 are you're going to eat very quickly see their their coding, as it were, like what they what the programmers told them to do. Um, but when you take take a step back and look at the architecture and the interaction of things and what they tried to do, it's really amazing. It's really weird. I think you made an excellent um, analogy to today, Bob, in a text to me um, of a famous director from one film to another. I can't oh, believe right. I'm drawing a blank on this. Yeah, Michael Cimino. He, he was the director. For, right. I mean, we were uh, in the midst of a text conversation i know that uh, i'm sure the podcast listeners love hearing relations <laughs> of text conversations but uh, we were thinking about you know the ways in which cd project red had succeeded so hugely with the witcher 3 and how much goodwill they had built up and then mm-hmm. that uh, cyberpunk 2077 was a big disappointment it was kind of a huge shock and all of that and it reminded me of a story from hollywood uh the director uh, Michael Smino, who directed a very famous American movie called The Deer Hunter, uh, which featured Christopher Walken, um, uh, Meryl Streep, um, De Niro. Uh, Robert De Niro, you know, lots of famous actors uh, in that movie, did very well, very well-respected film, considered to be kind of a great classic film of the Vietnam uh, era and about the Vietnam War. And he followed that up with one of the most hotly anticipated films of all time, which is a movie called Heaven's Gate. Uh, but that film famously had huge development problems, huge production problems. And then when it came out, it was nearly four hours long and considered to be one of the worst films ever made. <laughs> and it's a film that's gotten a lot of kind of reappraisals over the years, but I think still the kind of problems with it have remained consistent. Yeah. And, you know, I wonder. You know, because I think a lot of people were looking for analogies to the cyberpunk story and the shock of it. They were looking to those analogies in video games. But I think maybe this kind of story of Heaven's Gate is a, it's a more worthwhile analogy. It kind of helps us understand the situation a bit more. And I should say that uh, Michael Smino was never really the same after this right. happened. And it makes me wonder what's next for CD Projekt Red. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a fantastic, I love that analogy because I watched Heaven's Gate again a couple of years ago. It's such a weird film and it opens up with this like 45 minute thing of these guys graduating at Harvard in the 1880s, I think it is. And they're randomly fist fighting each other and they're getting drunk. They're doing all these things that were happening in, in Harvard and Yale in the 19th century. And it's absolutely fascinating and the sheer, like you can, you know, Deer Hunter is seen as this classic, and you can see Chimino. Oh, this is his genius in action. By the time you get to the end of the film, it's like, what was what was going on here? Like, it just none of it ever comes together. And uh, Cyberpunk really feels that way to me. There's parts of it where, like, this is wow. Like, some of the characters are great. Like, they are so good at writing characters, but then they'll give the characters kind of crappy dialogue, or the story will kind of go nowhere and or it gets trapped in what is sometimes to be perfectly frank a pretty juvenile attempt at being edgy and yeah i also like where do they go from here i mean these massive games are years in advance right mm-hmm. like, what on earth do they do now mm-hmm. i don't know mm-hmm. i don't know so yeah so we, we look at the city which i think night city the setting which i think is one of the successes of the game and 
and I'm really looking forward to it. And um, yeah, well, that's that's what I got. I'm looking forward to more Yakuza Like a Dragon. Bob, you got anything more to share before we call it a day? Uh, the only thing I would say is I played Control recently, uh, which I think is a game that might be interesting to History Spawned listeners and viewers. It's one that uh, was developed by Remedy, uh, came out in the end of 2019. And in this game, uh, you are playing as a young woman who's investigating the Federal Bureau of Control, which is a secret American agency which deals in paranormal activity and things that kind of affect uh, alternate realities, right? So these kind of what they call objects of power. And uh, so in this game, you go into uh, this kind of federal uh, bureau that has got this incredible uh, brutalist architecture from like the late 1960s. And uh, it reminds me a lot of the kind of brutalist architecture you see a lot of American universities, uh, University of Texas, where I went in particular, uh, their main library, the PCL, is kind of a mm-hmm. perfect modern example of brutalist architecture. And uh, the game itself, I think it's a lot like other Remedy games in the sense that uh, it has a very interesting story, very interesting uh, world and style to it. Uh, if you're interested in not only brutalism, but the kind of idea about you know government secrecy and redacted documents, you know, this is definitely the type of story for you, but it has the same problem that I think all Remedy games have is that the actual playing of the game gets really old really fast and it's very repetitive. And the gems that you get out of the story just kind of barely make it worth it in a game that I think in terms of actually playing the third person action just is it just becomes very stale very quickly. Uh, but still, uh, interesting experience, one that I've been thinking about doing for History Respawn, kind of marrying that up mm-hmm. with the recent Call of Duty uh, Cold War game. You know, it's kind of history of American secret operations. Uh, and I don't know, I, I might do something that I might not, who knows. But uh, Control, I would say it's worth checking out if you are at all interested in those kind of topics and themes. Awesome. That's awesome. Well, that's great. I think it's a good place to leave it. Um, thanks everyone for listening. I really appreciate it. Uh, as always, if you're interested in supporting the work we're doing, please consider uh, supporting us at patreon.com slash history respond. You can visit www.historyrespond for everything we do, podcasts, videos, little Monday updates I'm trying to do again, all these little things that we're doing uh, on YouTube and everywhere else. And uh, as always, we really appreciate the support and thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.